Hello, Freedom Fighters. Thank you for listening. This audio interview is brought to you by Open World Magazine, the ultimate guide for pursuing a life of adventure and passion and setting up a location-independent business that can support your dream lifestyle. Go check us out at openworldmag.com. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Open World Podcast. Today I'm joined by my friend Jiro Taylor. He's the host of the Flow State Collective podcast and uh, founder of the Flow State Collective, which is a global community of flow seekers, entrepreneurs, and adventurers. He writes at jirotaylor.com. He does podcasts and creates adventure retreats to explore altered states of consciousness. He also coaches entrepreneurs privately and guides them to optimize their life through flow, which is a state of heightened focus, of being present in the moment. He, he's really big on things like mindfulness, meditation, adventure. I'm really super excited to chat with him and learn about how we, can, we each can uh, optimize our life uh, potential and expand our uh, creative abilities through this concept of flow. Thank you so much for being here, Jiro. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Danny. Thanks for the great intro. It's, it's my pleasure to be here. So perhaps tell me a little bit about your background. Uh, where did you come from and how did you get started doing what you're doing now? Sure. So I guess I'll go back to uh, my teenage years and I kind of had a, a pretty normal upbringing. Um, my, my, my father was an airline pilot, so I was traveling all around the world when I was a kid, which was, which was amazing. And um, when I left college, um, I pretty much, all my friends were going off to join accountancy firms or law firms or banks. And it was that kind of, kind of scene where I was like, well, I don't really want to do that. I don't feel that's the path for me right now. Um, so I took an opportunity to go to Japan for a couple of years. So I uh, moved to Japan. I moved to this small city uh, right in the south of Japan called Kagoshima. It's, uh, it's a place It's famous for like it's have, having the smallest oranges in the world and the largest radishes in the world. And they got this massive uh, volcano, which gives this uh, really vibrant, fertile soil in the area. But it was, a, it, it was a place where I explored a lot of new things in my life. I was, uh, I was really, I dived deep into surfing. It was, a, it was a place with really, really high quality surf. And there was a place where I explored Zen Buddhism. Um, there was a temple just down at the end of my road. So I used to make my way there. I was just inherently curious about Eastern philosophy, having grown up in, in, a, in a Western world. I grew up in Hong Kong, then, then England. And um, I always felt like there was something missing from my education and from my upbringing in terms of, I don't know, like wisdom or understanding my mind. Um, I, I learned a lot about algebra and different types of clouds and continental landmasses and all these sorts of things that you learn in school. But there was this huge swathe of information that I felt like I, I, no one had even attempted to teach me. And that was like all around my consciousness and the thoughts that I have and um, all this sort of stuff that I began to explore when I began studying uh, meditation with these, with these old dudes in Japan. So I guess that was, uh, you know, the, the very, very, very start of my journey to, to explore flow states. So you had a lot of questions to which there were no ready answers, like no one taught you the answers to these questions in school. 
Yeah, like nothing in my school, nothing in my upbringing. I was never exposed to any sort of wisdom tradition when it came to questions like, what does it mean to be happy? What is purpose in life? Um, why are we all here? Um, what's the point of all of this? Like I knew that there were, well, I should, I should backtrack. I was actually, my mother was a very, is a very fundamentalist uh, Christian. She's a Jehovah's Witness. So she actually tried to ram religion down my throat from a very early age. And um, I kind of rebelled from that path at the age of 13. So I guess maybe that kind of made me question a lot because my mom is, is just completely driven by faith um, to like her, her, her beliefs and her God. And um, I was like kind of repelled by that whole notion of following someone else's truth or, um, you know, just fo- following, following something that's been written in a book or following some other person who's saying this is what you got to do. Like to me, it just seemed ridiculous that people were not finding the answers f- from within themselves. So uh, when I got to Japan and I began to explore Buddhism and uh, particularly Zen Buddhism, what I found was actually a system to find answers from within. Uh, Buddhism, I think, in its purest sense is definitely not a religion. It's actually a, a science of the mind. I think, I think like a Buddha was, was a dude who really wanted to find out why there was suffering in the world and he went out and he studied his mind to find out the causes of his own suffering. Um, and he developed a systematic uh, technique so that he could uh, get rid of the suffering within himself and he could teach that to other people. So to me, that was like, wow, this makes perfect sense. This, this, is, this makes way more sense than the dude picking the apple from the tree and, and there being this God who smites millions of people who don't believe in what he says. And you've got to follow this rule and this rule or otherwise you're out and you're going to die. This idea that actually we, we all come into this world as perfect beings and then we can all um, spend our lives either going deeper and deeper into delusion and suffering or we can spend our lives investigating the sources of our delusion and suffering so we can eradicate them. That to me was extremely empowering. And um, that, I guess that sort of got me, um, yeah, really got me interested in, 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 the, in the path of meditation and exploring my own mind. I think there's so much that Buddhism can teach us um, about ourselves and about our relationship to life and to the world. And um, I, think, I think one thing that, I guess, holds people back from exploring these deeper questions is that uh, they feel a need for certainty in their lives. You know, they don't like to, to be uncertain. And, um, you know, when a book comes along and, and tells you that this is the correct path, it's, it's much easier to subscribe to that and put that question to rest uh, permanently than to always be asking questions, and because that's, that's a lot of work, obviously. And I think even in, in the spectrum of Buddhism, um, like if, I remember reading the book Siddhartha, and um, yeah. I think that you need to be able to really live a full life to begin to comprehend the lessons uh, that Buddha discovered, because even, even um, you know, like in the book Siddhartha, when, when Buddha became Buddha, uh, a lot of people, you know, tried to subscribe to what he learned and, you know, like teach us master and, you know, teach us the doctrine uh, rather than going out and exploring the truth for themselves. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point of view. I feel like I completely understand the notion of 
having a having a faith. I mean, when I look at my own mother, she was always looking for answers, and she actually had a brief stint as a Christian Scientologist, I think, before she became a Jehovah's Witness. So the signs were there that she was always looking for some rock to hold on to, and and I guess that she felt like the world was just this vast place with open loops and un, unanswerable questions. And so for her to find this rock of certainty that her religion gave her was vastly reassuring. And I can really empathize with that, um, especially in a world, you know, like a, a world where there was so much suffering and death in the past. You know, like, like Buddha, uh, Siddhartha actually was brought up as a, as a prince. So he had all this, all this uh, wealth and opulence and opportunities um, and it was only when he went outside the, the, the walls of the kingdom when he was exposed to all the suffering um, did, he, did he go down that path that he's famous for. So maybe, you know, th- th- there's, certain, there's like a level of consciousness that's required, um, a level of fortune, a level of comfort that is required before one can abandon that kind of like safety mechanism of, of, of having that faith to hold on to. Maybe that's the case. Yeah, there's an expression that I like. It's kind of like a metaphor as well, an analogy, um, where the, the easy path kind of leads you nowhere, but the, the path of kings is the, the thorny path. It's, it's the hard one. It's the difficult one. And that's the path that uh, I think Siddhartha took, and I think it's the one that, that you're taking now. Um, and obviously, like you explore this topic in your... Uh, retreats and in your work where you expose people to challenges uh, to help them discover that greater awareness uh, yeah. to help them grow from where they are now. Yeah, I, I guess just to circle back to, to my story to understand how I got to where I am now, mm-hmm. you know, that, that time in Japan came to an end. And, and that was, when I look back, it was, it was two blissful years of surfing and meditating and I was doing a lot of triathlon training as well at the time and I was doing a lot of karaoke and I was generally just a 22 year old guy having the time (laughs) of his life living in Japan but also learning fascinating new concepts but like all good things it came to an end and it was like okay I got to go back to like the so-called real world all my friends and family were in England Um, I couldn't be an English teacher forever in Japan so I went back and I guess I was 24 at, at, by this stage, and I was like, what the hell am I going to do now? All my friends were like two years into their banking or insurance or law careers or whatever it was, and um, I knew a little bit more about my mind, and I could sit down and meditate, and uh, I was damn good at belting out Guns N' Roses songs on the karaoke machine, but uh, really, <laughs> I was, was kind of like two years behind these guys. Um, and that's how, that's how it felt to, to, to me, to like slightly immature Jiro. I felt like behind, behind the eight ball. Um, so I was like, holy shit, I have to hustle here. I have to like, I have to make up for lost ground because, you know, I was still like a young guy and I still had, you know, I was, I was not fully developed in terms of what, I, what my conception of success and a good life was. I'd definitely been heavily influenced by the whole Zen Buddhist aesthetic of minimalism and you know not really needing much to have a full life but I got back to England and there was still a lot of residual I gotta have the house I gotta have the property portfolio I gotta I gotta be successful I gotta prove to my dad that I can do this that and the other and all all these sort of normal conditioned things that people in our culture have I, I had so 
long story short, I ended up uh, getting sucked into the rat race. And I was like, uh, I went, I got a job working as a headhunter in the finance industry, uh, which is kind of like about as like boiler room as you can get. It's like uh, a Wolf of Wall Street lifestyle and like a boiler room uh, work ethic where you're just like smashing the phone and just engaging in hardcore persuasion and sales tactics uh, to achieve your, your, your goals and, and hit your sales targets. And so I got sucked into this world and it was, um, it was a, a few of the most interesting years of my life. It was pure hedonism. There was complete excess. There was like 24, 25-year-old people earning millions of dollars. Um, there were people going on company trips to Vegas and Ibiza where things would get loose. Um, you know, lots of fun at the time. <laughs> but not not a sustainable life, and uh, I, I I leapt into this world two feet first, and I was very 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 good at the job, and uh, within after the first year, I was like the second highest uh, earner in the whole company of like a few hundred people in this whole company spread around the world, and after my second year, I was sent to Hong Kong to set up a new office, and uh, after that year, I was like the top performer in the whole company, like kind of like the poster boy earning the most money and all that kind of stuff. And um, the reason why I tell you, tell you this is because it's, it's such an integral part of my story of where I am now because I really tasted everything that was supposed to bring me happiness, you know, according to the narrative of our culture. If you, if you climb the ladder, you're supposed to have security. If you earn a million dollars a year, you're supposed to set yourself up and that's supposed to equal security and that's supposed to equal, I don't know, some sort of good feeling. If you like are the guy that's like killing it, that gives you status and that's supposed to feel good in some sense as well. So I kind of had everything. I had like holidays and watches and I was, you know, earning a lot of money for, for, for a young kid. But actually, Danny, I felt really, really, really unhappy. Um, it, was, it was ironic. I remember sitting in my apartment in Hong Kong on the 13th floor and I could look over the whole of the city and I was just sat there after working a full day, lying on my couch, and I'd put, I'd put National Geographic Adventure Channel on. That was like kind of like what I'd do just to zone out, just to try and wind down. And I was watching these guys just, you know, climbing mountains or going on surf trips or going whitewater rafting. And I would have this feeling, Danny, that I was selling out on something because I've always, all throughout my childhood... I never had aspirations to be a wealthy man or to own a yacht or anything like that. I kind of just wanted to see the world. I wanted to explore. I wanted to travel. I wanted to try new things. Like a, a life well lived to me was a life full of experiences rather than stuff. And, but here I was, sat in this penthouse apartment in Hong Kong, and I was living the opposite of that. I was working 80-hour weeks. I was 15 kilos heavier than I am now. I was kind of stressed, anxious, on the edge of burnout. I was, I was neck deep in an industry that was all about making money, all about you know, doing anything you could do to close the deal. Like that, There were no ethics. It was just do what you had to do to close the deal. And uh, it got to me, man. It got to me. And I, and I got to a stage where I was, I guess I was just, I, I guess I built up the courage. And actually, it was fear, bro. I'll, I'll be completely honest. I got goddamn scared at how I was changing because I, I sensed my ego building and I sensed my fears getting uh, heightened. I became, the more money I had, the more afraid I became of losing it. 
And uh, this, this scared the shit out of me because I was like, I am changing as a person. I could literally trace my change as a human being. Like I was, I was like shopping for like 20 grand watches when before I was like a complete dirtbag traveler who didn't, couldn't give a shit about his watch. And so I was changing as a person. So this scared me immensely. So I, so I eventually summoned up the courage to, to quit that job. And I, I quit right at the top. Everyone was like, what, what, how, how can you quit? You're on this path to absolute glory, to earn a fortune. Like just keep what you're doing and, and you've made it in life. And, um, but I quit and I ended up packing my bags and my surfboards and a whole load of books on philosophy and psychology and the mind. And I ended up going on a trip around the world, like a quest for two years. And I lived in Indonesia for, for seven months just to recalibrate and immerse myself back in surfing and eat healthy and meditate, learn yoga. And that, I guess, is like the real, the real start to where I am right now. I kind of got, I kind of was like this um, slingshot that was getting wound back and wound back and wound back. And then I just kind of ejected at high velocity um, into this into this new life, and that really was the root of me setting up Flow State. Um, and now Flow State stands for helping people achieve a type of peak performance that has nothing to do with those outward manifestations of success. It's got nothing to do with uh, with, uh, with with the trappings of wealth or anything like that. It's what I teach people now is how to achieve an inner sense of success, uh, how to achieve inner mastery. Um, so I guess uh, sure. a bit of a ramble, Danny, but that's, that's, yeah. that's the long story short. Yeah, I want to I ask you a quick question. So I, I think this is great stuff. I mean, you were at this place where you were, you were achieving all of these external things. And, um, you know, it seemed like on paper, like it was the perfect life. But, you know, you were unhappy. And I, I know what it's like to be in that situation because you feel like you, your mindset is changing. And you're like, you know, this, this is not aligned to my values. And... Um, at, at some point, you reach this this point where uh, you don't like who you've become. You know, you don't like the things that you're currently valuing, and maybe you don't even like yourself. And and you notice that these thoughts suddenly come in, where you, you all these negative thoughts start to fly in, and you're like, why? How did I arrive at this state? How did I arrive at this this point of pain and frustration? I mean, I can I can definitely relate to that. I think it's when you you live a life that's not authentic to you for long enough, then you start to reach that that stage. Uh, but let me ask you: Why do you think that these? Why do you think that this, you know, fancy car, um, you know, having a big paycheck, you know, like um, having a, you know, condo on the 40th floor of a building, you know, why is this stuff so seductive? Why are, do most people um, spend their lives striving for these things, Jira? Yeah, it's. I've, I've spent a lot of time examining that question. You know, it's on one level, it's. We're, we're very basic beings. It's, you know, we're survival orientated. We, you know, if we were to trace our lineage back thousands and hundreds of thousands of years or whatever it is, it was all about if, if you had the sharpest blade, then you were going to survive. Like your, 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 your genes were, were going to survive. Like your offspring were going to survive if you could provide at a higher level than the next guy. So, I feel like on one level it's 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 just we operate in this very primal like survival system um which is ironic because it's it's not about survival it's just that we haven't caught yet that level of consciousness we're not actually fighting for survival anymore where it's turned into an ego thing but I feel like 
you know, look at the cultural conditioning that goes on, man. Like from the moment we're, we're, we're ejected from the womb, we're subject to a barrage of messages coming at us from our family, then from schooling, then from media, then from higher education, then from the workforce, celebrities, government, everything are all perpetuating this message that if you are secure, then life is good. So we have this illusion of security. And what it, what it, what it means is that everybody is seeking, everybody is living in fear. There's a lot of people living in fear. And they feel like it's like, uh, yeah, I guess that, that's it in a nutshell. Everyone's living in fear. But why, why is the other stuff so seductive? Um, I don't know, man. For me, I guess it was, I can only talk about myself. I guess it was an, an, an ego-related thing. Like I thought like the more stuff I had, the more successful I was. There's definitely a comfort thing. Like, like let's, not, let's not pretend that driving a BMW isn't a nicer experience to driving a a beaten up car right there's there's definitely a comfort thing it's like it's sometimes it's yeah. nice to have nice stuff well right? I, I think I think part of it too is our, our two strongest drives you mentioned survival and then the second one is reproduction as well uh, so reproduction I mean it can it can also come in the form of like acceptance um, you know just just being like an attractive guy who has a BMW and a nice watch uh, you know having affection getting other people's love and and you think that you know having all this, these uh, instruments of success will uh, well. Let's not lie. I mean, you, you can get any chick that you want, for example, uh, if you have all this this cool stuff, you know. So I, I feel like do you feel like we're we're too. I guess we're we're too trapped in these twin drives of survival and reproduction. And then you mentioned that uh, these lead to us living in fear, either of you know losing what we have or or distrust. Like if someone is doing better than us. Uh, it keeps us locked in a cycle of fear is what you're saying. Absolutely, man. I think, I think that's a good point about you raised about the, the reproductive drive. Um, I feel like when I was, when I was living in, my, in that penthouse apartment in Hong Kong, I, I was like, there were, there were times, usually when I was hungover or on some sort of come down, uh, where I was wallowing in, in deep, deep, deep self, self-loathing. And... You know, if, if, if I had looked in the mirror during any one of those days, I would not have been able to, to look at myself in the eye and, and register any sort of self-acceptance or self-love or self-appreciation. There was only like this underlying residual disdain for, for allowing myself to, to, to be in this position. And um, yeah, I feel, like, I feel like there's a whole load of the world out there who, I mean, it boils down, all suffering, all pain, all of the negative things out there in, in my philosophy all boil down to a lack of self-love, a lack of self-appreciation. And, yeah, the rest of the stuff is uh, the trappings of, of wealth is often a, a disguise or an avoidance strategy from fronting up to that lack of self-acceptance. It's just like shiny trinkets. Hey, look over here. I am, I am everything that I could be because I have this stuff. Um, and it sort of like uh, allows people to not do the confrontational work on facing up to who they are and what their weaknesses are and how, what they can do to do about them. 
Right, that's a great point. I, I think that we, we tend to kind of ignore our weaknesses and pretend they don't exist and or we overcompensate, you know, for something else rather than um, just accepting that, you know, we are flawed beings and there's a, a certain beauty in that. I think that we don't accept our own flaws, we don't accept the flaws of others and I think that really prevents us from, from achieving true love, real love. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that's prof- profound lack of acceptance um certainly of ourselves out there and, and it's, cir- uh, circling back to buddhism like um you know it's a perfect example of that you know buddha was not perfect either and um you know in his story he would have died uh under the tree after he reached enlightenment if the little girl hadn't come and brought him food and that's just a beautiful lesson of interdependence and you know accepting that you know i'm, I'm gonna die out here under this tree uh but this this little girl who's maybe like five years old comes in and brings buddha uh, like a bowl of rice or something like this. And um, just that lesson that we're all in it together. And, you know, you can't try to be perfect, a perfect being and survive independently on your own. You have to accept your own flaw and you have to uh, accept the generosity and uh, being connected to other people, I think. Yeah, man, I think that's a really good point. Like, yeah. Talk to me more about your views on, on interconnection. Because for me, like, just circling back to this upbringing that I had, and I'm sure lots of the lots of the listeners have had, we are we, we're taught that we're that there's no connection with other beings. We're, we're we're separate. We're alone. We're independent. And the you know the kind of the American dream is all about that fierce independence. And the entrepreneur archetype is all about being fiercely independent and successful. And you stand on your own two feet and all that sort of thing. Whereas when you look into Buddhism and, and, and Hinduism, Taoism and other Eastern philosophies, you see like a, a more of a, uh, an emphasis on collectivism, not, not, in a, not in a communist sense, but as in we're all connected by something. There is something that joins us all together. And uh, that to me was a huge breakthrough moment when I, when I felt that in my life. What about you? Yeah, I definitely relate to that. I think um, in Western culture, we're definitely a lot more, um, we feel that drive towards independence, um, you know, being independent people. And as a result, I think that in some ways it harms us because uh, a lot of us, you know, we're, we're disconnected from our families. Uh, you know, a lot of us hate our families or we, we don't communicate with them, um, you know, and, and also we feel like alone, you know, we feel isolated from other people. And I think that's definitely a weakness. I can remember you know, going back when I lived in the U.S. and a lot of my friends, like, I, I never see them enough, you know, like, I want to see you guys more, but it's just like if I see them on a birthday or somebody's birthday or something, some special occasion, or uh, uh, I might only see my family if someone, you know, a funeral or something like this or a wedding, you know, something has to be something really important. And I think there's yeah. like, there's like a strong urge not to be connected, I feel like, you know, yeah. like, like, like admitting, admitting, you know, that we need human connection seems to be like admitting weakness. And I think that's that's a tragic flaw. It's a fatal flaw, I think. Oh, it's an extremely fatal flaw. Have you have you watched the documentary called Happy? No, I haven't. Tell me about that one. Oh, it's awesome. It's you can find it on iTunes, um, and it's 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 a really fantastic uh, documentary that explores the roots of human happiness. Um, so the, the makers of the documentary do a fantastic job of uh, using case studies of people from different cultures. Who, and different different demographic groups, so you know wealthy people, unwealthy people, um, 
people who have had tragic accidents accidents in their life and been severely facially disfigured but feel happier after the accident than they did before. Um, people who have got no money um, and their family live like underneath a, a plastic sheet um, but live in a state of happiness. And the, 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 just to summarize, there's the, the takeaway that I got from this film was that there's a, there's a massive difference. Like what, if your human needs, if your basic needs for survival are not met, then of course you're not going to be happy. So, so in financial terms, the difference between someone having $5,000 and $50,000 is huge because if you've got $5,000 coming in in a year, then you're going to really struggle to feed your kids. Um, between someone earning $50,000 and $500,000 shows there's no correlation in terms of what that does for human happiness. Um, so it was really an interesting uh, exploration of the fact, the other factors. So, so community was this huge thing. Like community was um, what I took as like the number one factor in happiness. And uh, the flow states was another one, like how, how you engage with, uh, the, with what you do, with the work that you do, uh, whether you turn it into a chore or whether you turn it into play. Um, and then the third thing, the final factor, was, was about the extent to which you give in your life. So your, your, sense, of, your sense of purpose or giving back or serving a cause that's, that's larger than yourself. So th- those three factors are the, the, the basic ingredients for happiness. Yeah, that's great stuff. So you said that documentary was uh, called Happy, right? That's it. Just happy. It's on iTunes. Okay, I'm going to look that one up. I, I do remember reading a few years ago um, this article in Psychology Today. I think it's called Lessons for Living. And um, they, they cited a bunch of studies where they mentioned that uh, the higher the quantity and quality of your relationships, the longer that you live. And um, people with active social lives are 50% less likely to die of any cause than non-social counterparts, is what the, the study collected, or what the study revealed. And they found that uh, low levels of social interaction have the same negative effects of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, and even worse than being obese or not exercising. I think that's a really wow. powerful lesson. Yeah. Wow. 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 That that's made, amazing. That made a huge impact on me when I when I read that article. Um, you know, like we 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 think that to be healthy, we have to exercise every day. We have to, uh, you know, not eat junk food. But who would have who would have placed emphasis on just, you know calling up a friend and, and meeting for lunch. You know, nobody places any importance on that. Oh, man, that's, that's, uh, that's really, really interesting. And I, and I know <laughs> one of the things that I love about traveling to Asia and other, you know, places, not just Asia, third world countries often, but when you see it, uh, the differences in how family units relate to each other, you know, how multi-generations under one roof, for example, and... Um, I'm sure this is how all humans were at one stage, but something in the Western world happened where we all disbanded and we all just started living in our own cubicles. And um, it seems to me like there's something so beautiful in that multi-generational, lots of different family members all living together because it's such a security blanket, isn't it? It's just that, that psychological study that you were talking about. Like that's like, imagine if you've got, all these cousins and aunties and uncles all around you, then you're, you're never, ever, ever going to have uh, suffer from 
uh, those diseases correlated to lack of social interaction? Yeah, I, I think definitely, but I think there's also a dark side to it too because um, you know these these families tend to be a bit overbearing, uh, so they they can limit your independence and I guess freedom to kind of be who you want to be if, if you feel a lot mm. of pressure from your parents and they say that you know you have to be a doctor or you have to be a lawyer or something like this. So mm. I, I wouldn't say that it's all you know positive, but I think mm. that there's there's lessons from both the Western philosophy and uh, Eastern philosophy. And I think that if we take them together, then, then we can kind of evolve and become even more aware. <laughs> Absolutely, man. And I should, yeah. I should caveat what I just said with the, uh, <laughs> with the truth that I'm living 6,000 kilometers away from anybody who's in my family <laughs> uh, by my choice. Not because I don't love my family, but that's just the choices that I've made in my life. So yeah, I'm, uh, you're, you're absolutely right there, man. Like you're absolutely right. Seth Godin actually wrote a post about this on his blog where he, he was saying that, um, you know, if, uh, I guess the, the gist of it was that uh, if, if you're surrounded by people, you know, who will, like, pick you up if you're the victim, you know, like if something bad happens to you, um, you know, that's one thing. But if, if you're doing really well, like they don't want to see that or something like that, like they'll, they might try to hold you back and put you back uh, to... Uh, bring you back to who your old self was and that can stop you from growing and, and I guess he said if, if you have the right friends uh, then you don't have to deal with that anymore because the, you know, the right friends are, are growing themselves and, and they're not going to discourage you so sometimes I feel like sometimes we have to let go of certain relationships if uh, they're holding us back from becoming who we want to become. Uh, to be honest that's that, that's probably one of the key points of of my evolution over the last 15 years is my is my ability or, or my I don't know if it's an ability or something some drive within me that led me to just be quite nomadic and to so I think I've gone through various stages of rebirthing uh, in the last 15 15 years or so because I've just I've lived in eight countries um, over the last 15 years so each time is like a a new opportunity, a, a, a new a new self, um, a new opportunity to create different types of connections and friends and explore new areas. So yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I love that. I feel like whenever you you shift to a new environment, like it gives you that chance to reinvent yourself and to you know just kind of go in a completely different direction. You're free. There's nothing constraining you to hold you back. And um, I'd actually like to, to use this opportunity to kind of transition this conversation. I, I think it's been great. Like, we've had a great philosophical discussion here. Um, but I, I want to talk about, you know, like, going back to um, when you were in Hong Kong and you were living this life of unhappiness, um, you obviously made a, a rebirth and um, transitioned to, I guess, a life of more authenticity and eventually, um, you know, achieving uh, that flow state. So... Can you walk me through, like, how was that? How did that process um, happen for you, and what was it like? Yeah, so, so I left Hong Kong, and as you say, like, inauthentic is is the very key word to use here. Like, I literally felt like I was a fraud, and and like I was walking around with a mask on, and I was hiding who I really was. I mean, at that stage, I didn't really know who I really was. I had to go through this process of of figuring that all out. Um, a few years later, when I, when I started up uh, Flow State, I'd, by this stage, I'd done a hell of a lot of, of uh, 
self-awareness work. I've been doing a whole lot of, um, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd read widely on uh, self-development stuff, everything ranging from um, NLP to Tony Robbins to uh, Taoism. Um, I, I read widely on a lot of areas, uh, quite esoteric areas, um, mixing with quite scientific areas. So studying about uh, neuroscience, uh, studying psychology in the mind. And um, I remember when I first picked up the book, which is uh, called Flow, uh, by the psychologist Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who's kind of called like the godfather of flow or the, the he's, he's the dude accredited with um, raising awareness of flow states in the West in a way that can be backed up by, by research in a, in an academic setting. Okay. So, so Csikszentmihalyi uh, wrote this book called flow. It was one of the first books on uh, positive psychology and he, and he led this huge study in the 70s. And at that stage in the 70s, um, Danny, they, they did a hell of a lot of research on stress and suicide and anxiety. Um, but they hadn't really done much study into the conditions for the, a good life. It was seen as like, oh, you know, it was seen as kind of like a fluffy or a, a non-serious academic path to go down. Um, so anyway, I, I read this book. I picked this book up and I, and I read it. Uh, and I immersed myself in it, and it it blew my mind, and it changed my life forever, because all of a sudden there was this language and system and this kind of rigorous framework around which I could correlate all these different experiences in my life that had been key experiences in my life, and I'll and I'll explain to you a little bit about what I mean by that. So. When I say like peak experiences, like I'm sure you can uh, think of a few peak experiences in your life. For me, a peak experience for me was uh, surfing and being out in the ocean and being surrounded by by hundreds of dolphins and just me, the ocean, dolphins and nature. And that was a moment that I that I remember vividly. It was a moment where I felt a great sense of connection um, with, with with nature. And it was a it, it was a state that was thoughtless. It was it was fearless. And then I've had other stage, other um, and, and not forced episodes. either. And not forced, completely natural. Yeah. But I, and I've had experiences where I've been meditating by myself or in a room full of other meditators, and I've achieved a state where I've gone to a place where my thoughts are not, and I've connected with a part of myself that is not the thinking mind. And I've felt this similar sense of harmony and flow. And I've had other states on uh, psychedelics um, with mushrooms or on LSD or other sorts of recreational substances even where I've been with a group of friends and we've experienced transcendent states and we've connected on a level that is beyond thought. And a few of these experiences always hovered in the back of my mind as this is special, but I don't know why. And I don't know what the profundity of this is. So I'm just going to keep it in the back of my mind until I know more about this stuff. So when I read the book, Flow, it was like, oh, my God, flow is what connects all of these things. Flow is why I'm drawn to meditation. Flow is why I love surfing and snowboarding and climbing mountains and things like that. 
And flow is the, the experience that I sought out when I was partying and hanging out with my friends and going, doing all crazy kind of ceremonies and stuff. And um, when, when I learned about this, it, it, I went into a frenzy of action. Um, all of a sudden, I was like, I was like this kind of like mad professor who'd, who'd like stumbled across this, this, this finding, this exciting breakthrough. And all I could focus on was, was, was flow. And I began to um, trace flow experience in my life. I began to experiment when I went surfing, how I could put myself in a state where I would experience flow because it didn't happen all the time. It was very random up up until that stage. Um, I would experiment with my working day so that I could experience more of these states. Um, And every conversation I had with people, I was exploring how they achieved these states. And I'd read more and more and more and more. And um, eventually it got to the stage where I was like, this is it. This is my calling. This is, this is my purpose in life. I'm going to ex- explore these states of altered consciousness because I feel they are so profound and so powerful because they give us a glimpse of our authentic state. And consider that I was a guy who was living in an inauthentic state for many, many years. So to find this state, which was pure authenticity, it was innate. There was, it was free for any of the, any of the conditioning. It was just me Un, in a state of non-forcing, non-striving. And uh, I thought that, and I still feel very passionate that this is, this is a path that's worthy of, of my life's effort. So I set up Flow State Collective to explore these states and to share these states with others so that other people can move from a life of inauthenticity to a life of authenticity. And so I've gone deep into modeling it and pre- uh, creating structures and systems um, so that other people can achieve more flow. Awesome. So I'm, I'm brimming with eager anticipation at this point. Uh, and I want to ask you, because I, I can definitely relate to those flow states that you mentioned. I can think of events and places in my life where I was in this state and um, I just felt so giddy, so full of life, you know, so happy and just, um, you know, so accepting of everything around me and everyone around me, everything I saw. Um, but I want to ask you, so like you, you mentioned that you have built these systems and these processes, and uh, I noticed, noticed that on your blog you mentioned one point where you said uh, uh, goals without a process are useless. Uh, but I want to ask you, what I'm, what I'm really burning to know is, um, is this state something that you can uh, reach like on a daily basis? Because I know that we all like have experienced this at some point, uh, but... Again, it's not something that you can really force. So it's not like you can just uh, repeat a bunch of affirmations or you know eat your carrots in the morning and suddenly you're in a flow state, right? So is this is this something that you can um, engineer to to reach more regularly, like on a daily basis or maybe like uh, more often? I guess. Hundred percent, okay. absolutely. But first of all, let's let's get a few definitions in place. So. Flow, the flow state from a, a neuroscientific or a psychological perspective is a state of optimal consciousness in which we perform our best and we feel our best. And a flow state is characterized by a neurological change in which parts of our prefrontal cortex shut down or slow down, um, which allow us to operate from a different system of mind. So the parts of the brain that control our our ego and our create our separate sense of self and our sense of linear time, those areas shut down when we're in flow, which allow us to experience that, that, that sense of oneness, right? 
So it's it's not so, so so let's just go deeper into that. So in other words, your higher functioning executive functions that, that your prefrontal cortex drives, so logic, reason, analysis, judgment, all of these things that have allowed humans to catapult to the top of the apex, these diminish when we're in a flow state. So being in flow all the time is not a desired objective. Okay, contrary gotcha. to what contrary to what many people think, okay? So because when you're in a flow state, you're not going to be able to do the thinking required to uh, be an engineer and and build that bridge or to uh, plan decide whether you're going to take route A or route B when you're trying to read a map. Like we need to be in that state of uh, beta brainwave uh thinking uh, robustly and analyzing data um, often in our lives. But do we need to be in that state all the time? Do we want to be thinking all the time? Do we want to be judging and analyzing and using rationality all the time? I, th- I think the answer is quite evident from the fact that we can all relate to, to, to like overthinking about stuff and we can all relate to living in a culture where there's far too much stress and anxiety out there. So, so what I'm saying is that we have, we, we have these two systems. We can either, we can either be, and, and a neuroscientist called Arne Dietrich calls it the implicit and the explicit system. So the explicit system is, is all prefrontal cortex, logic and reason. The implicit system is all intuition and flow. So it's not that one's superior to the other. It's just that we're built to live in balance. We're built to balance those two things out, but our culture is driving people towards the logic and the reason all the time. So just to circle back on your original question, can we engineer our lives so that we experience more flow states? 100%. Absolutely. There are many times in our life where we shouldn't be um, using logic and reason, where we should just be relying on our intuition, and we can set up our lives so that we can do that for sure. Okay, so you mentioned brainwaves, and um, I know that there's... uh I talk about this in my book, Hack Sleep. There's there's different brainwaves: the beta waves, alpha waves, theta waves, and delta waves. Um, mm. And there's also a, a fifth brainwave. I think it's called the, the gamma waves, mm. which yep. are supposedly like um, on a completely different plane. And uh, they've measured like certain Tibetan Buddhists who are able to achieve this gamma wave state. Is that like the ultimate state of flow? Would you say? Yeah, I think like there's still a lot of research to be done here. Like, yeah. it's still a it's still an unknown frontier. But what what they have found is that the gamma wave and and I'm and I and I should note here that uh, I'm not a neuroscientist. I try and I try and speak to as many and and read as many books from neuroscientists and if you go onto the Flow State Performance podcast, there's a wonderful interview with Professor Arn Dietrich and there's another interview with Professor Michael Graziano from Princeton. And these guys study the brain and consciousness day in, day out. And so I defer to their higher wisdom on all of this sort of stuff. But the, the gamma brainwave is paired with, with, with delta, I believe. So it's only when we're in a certain state that the gamma wave is, 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 ever, is ever shown. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, if, you, if you're seeing it sporadically in, in, the, in the brains of experience, of extremely experienced meditators, then, what's, then what that is saying to me is that's a, that's a state of extremely heightened consciousness. And I think some researchers have also uh, linked that, that flash of gamma with a 
with creative insight, with the, the merging together of past experience with something new to create something new. Um, so, yeah, that's what it could be. It could just be that moment, that aha moment could be the gamma. Okay, great. Great stuff. So I think one takeaway I took when I did my research for the book was that, um, you know, beta waves are very short, high-frequency waves where, um, you know, we're kind of just like, it's kind of like the lizard brain, you know, where we're just like, I need to find food, I need to find shelter, um, oh, and I'm horny too, so I need to find a mate. And then uh, when, when we're able to, like, um, through things like meditation, um, relaxing activities that produce cortisol, uh, we're able to reach these alpha waves, which are kind of uh, slower, more drawn out, that allow for deeper thinking. So there were, were certain activities like um, uh, meditation, listening to music, relaxation, you know, just unplugging, um, that could allow us to reach that alpha wave state. And, yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and another thing I uncovered too was that, um, so it's synonymous with reducing cortisol, which is kind of like reducing stress. And um, I remember reading a TED talk, I think I, uh, Derek, our friend Derek taught me this, that uh, it said that leaders, you know, like really effective leaders have very low cortisol and uh, very high testosterone. And mm. um, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, you know, no, brain, no, no, brain no, that's waves, really hormones, yeah. It's, it's all correlated to flow. Like if you yeah. start, if you start delving into the, the, the science of flow states, you'll start learning all about these neurotransmitters and these stress hormones and these different brainwave states. It's, it's all very, very interesting stuff. And what you learn is, is the amount of agency, the amount of control we have over all of this. So that's what's so empowering about learning about flow. We're not just like leaves floating along this river of life. Like we do have some sort of agency by exercising the power of, our, of choice. Um, so, for example, if you find yourself, I don't know, in the office, in a stressed out situation, and you got deadlines, and you got a boss who's shouting at you, and you find yourself super stressed out, and you've got that kind of feeling where your mind is just full to the brim, and it's overflowing, and it just wants to burst, and you just want to scream, then what's going on there is you've got high beta brainwaves going on. You're like, you're thinking a lot. You're thinking too much. And you're, you're, it's an extremely uncreative state that you're in. So you're basically in a state of, if you start to feel the adrenaline and you start to feel the cortisol build up, then you're in a state of fight or flight. Your, your parasympathetic nervous system has gone into a, a, an emergency mode. So you're, you're, you're basic, your biology is saying run away or fight. And this why this is fascinating is because if you try and do anything from this state, then you are going to be profoundly ineffective if you're trying to be creative. I mean, because literally the biology of being in this state goes something like this. Your, your peripheral vision diminishes so that you can only see what you need to see in front of you. In extreme situations, your bladder and your bowels released, which make you lighter so that you can run away. Your all sorts of cardiorespiratory uh, things go on to make you better equipped to just get the hell out of there. So if you're operating from that state and you're trying to be an effective entrepreneur or worker, you're trying to be an effective uh, producer of, of, of work, then really you're, you're screwed. You're not going to do it. You're just going to, you're not in the right state to do that. So 
what you have to realize is that you have to learn how to switch yourself onto another mode. You have to learn how to switch your brainwaves from, from fast beta brainwaves to slower alpha brainwaves. You have to learn how to switch your body from a state of fight or flight to a state of rest and recover so that you just feel chilled out. And there are ways to do this. And uh, studying, about, studying flow has taught me ways to do this. Studying physiology and meditation has taught me a way to do this. But one simple thing for the listeners to do is to, is to breathe, is to, is to start taking elongated breaths and really breathing fully from your stomach and really allowing that exhale to be drawn out. But don't just breathe. Focus your mind on the mechanics and the feelings, the sensations of breathing. And know that by doing this, you're actually sending a physiological trigger to your autonomic nervous system to switch from a a state of stress to a state of recovery. You're also sending a message to your brain to switch from fast brain waves to slower brain waves. And you're basically putting yourself, you're, you're using the power of your mind to become a far higher performing, more effective person in that present moment in time. And, and it's only from that state of rest, from that, from that chilled out state, can you achieve flow. Uh, that's an important point. You'll never, ever, ever achieve flow whilst you're in a fear state. Yeah, that's a great point. So you just, you just gave us a really great technique there, just, just breathing, um, because breath is an example of something that we do all the time automatically without thinking about it, and you're drawing awareness to the breath and experiencing um, that taking control, you know, taking control of the automatic process. And I think, mm. that, I think that's one great exercise. I have a bunch of different exercises that I like to suggest and recommend to people. Um, mm. one, one is, like you mentioned uh, earlier, per, your peripheral vision, like that shuts down, you know, your awareness shuts down. Um, I have an exercise I do sometimes where I, I stretch my arms out and I have like a little gap between my hands. You know, I put my hands together in front of me. Yeah. And then I'll just look through that gap and then I'll slowly uh, stretch my arms, my hands out so that they're away from each other and just observe them as they, they go further and further apart and then I'll bring them back together while staring just at the center. You know, just, just so I'm like staying focused but I'm also staying aware and just increasing my awareness. Mm. Um, I, f- I find that to be another one that, that's been helpful. So how do you, how do you put your hands? Um, you, you put them out, you stretch them out directly in front of you so that uh, your, your forefinger and your thumb are together, are touching, and they kind of yeah. form a, a triangle, kind of like the, the triforce on your, uh, on your oh, block. Yeah. <laughs> <Which, yeah. clears throat> and then you just, you just look there, and then you, you slowly uh, pull them apart from one another. You slowly stretch them out apart from one another. Your left hand goes to the left, your right hand goes to the right until they're fully outstretched. And then you just kind of slowly bring them back and... I just find that's a good exercise for, um, you know, strengthening that peripheral vision, strengthening that awareness. Um, another one I, I find that I, I like to do, use, use a lot is just I'll count letters. You know, like yeah. if I'm looking at a page on a book or if I'm looking at an advertisement, I'll just slowly just count each letter, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And that, that mm. just kind of just gets me focused on one thing so my eyes aren't darting around and my mind's not going off in all these different mm. directions. Oh, I love that, man. Yeah. I suggest to what, what, something that I do whilst I'm walking from A to B, if I'm going to catch a, a train or, or going to meet some buddies at a cafe, I will get my, my walking pace in sync with my breathing. 
and I will try to walk a certain number of paces to each inhale, a certain number of paces to each no breath, and a certain number of paces to each out breath. And um, again, just like your exercise, it, it really trains the mind to stay focused because that's, that's um, I'm glad you brought that up, Danny, because I, I, want, I want to make clear to, to everybody something about flow states because there's a lot of hype and it's kind of aligned with the trend of our culture. And that is this, this trend of adding more to the experience to gain something. So there's a lot of people who are like, oh, flow states, you've got to do this, you've got to add the goal, you've got to set the feedback loop, and you've got to have the, set the right mix of challenge and skill. And there's truth to all of this sort of stuff. But for me, the biggest hack to achieve more flow states is to notice in your life what you can take away. What you can take away from your experience that removes the distraction and the clutter to allow you to have greater focus on what is going on in the present moment. So training for focus and attention by doing the things that you described or doing the walking thing, meditation, breath watching, just anything that keeps you single-minded, whether it's reading, writing. When you listen to music, listen to music. When, you, when you're chopping the onions, chop the onions. But that exercise of mindfulness in action, to me, is the most powerful fuel, the biggest hack for flow states that there actually is out there. And this is not something that's going to come easy, easily, obviously. So we need these, uh, these techniques, and we need to be willing to commit to this uh, over the long term. I mean, you know, Buddha's a perfect example. Like, he left behind a palace and a wife and kids to go out and live in the forest so that he could reach this flow state. Um, mm. So, so that's, I think that's probably another deterrent, is that a lot of people want easy results. They don't want to um, commit themselves to it fully. You know, it's like, just tell me what I have to do. And then they, they try meditating, and they're like, okay, but they give up, you know. Uh, so I, mm. I think you really need to, to be deeply committed. I think it has to uh, really be strong in line with your principles. That's just my two cents. Oh, absolutely, man. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's not going to come easy. It's, it's going to be a struggle mm. because our, um, especially, especially in this, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder, Danny, don't you think? Like I, I feel like when I was a kid, there were less distractions than when there are now. You know, so it, it's becoming ever harder to train to train yourself to be single-minded. But I feel like um, if you want to sort of look at the how humanity is evolving, I feel like it's going to be the ones who have learned how to focus their mind are going to be the ones that start to leap to the top of the pyramid. Yeah, because all of those like rote activities, you know, the the non-thinking activities, are all going to be handled by technology. I feel. Yeah. So it's going to require the higher level thinking. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely cool. right. So I feel like in that sense, that's a, that's a good, that's a good point, um, Danny. And I spoke about this in a podcast I did with, with Phil Drillet about how uh, we all need to be part of saying, well, mindfulness and meditation, it's, it's, let's demystify it and let's bring it into the mainstream because it is damn sexy. It's like it is a, the ultimate performance enhancer it is the ultimate way to ensure the success of yourself and your future generations is to train your mind to to single focus and uh but there's but there's a lot of noise out there which well there's a lot of people who have resistance to meditation and mindfulness because it's you know i guess they they connect it with esoteric esoteric stuff or with hippies or something um but i just feel it's a super modern cutting-edge practice to train the mind. 
Yeah, so there's one thing I wanted to talk with you about too, and this, this is kind of related to what we're, we're discussing now. Um, this is actually, this concept that we're, we're discussing now has been explored for a very long time. You mentioned Eastern philosophy. Um, you're really big on uh, like the samurai uh, code, and, and um, I've also mentioned uh, quite a few, in, in my first book, I, I, I mentioned several things from the, the samurai code, and um, you know, being living true to the present moment. Um, you mentioned a, a concept called Zen Shin, which I believe is from Aikido. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and, and it's like a, letting your mind be like water. I think. Um, can Can you tell me a little bit? Like, is there anything that you can share that you've learned from this ancient samurai philosophy and uh, the things that you've explored there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the, the samurai were. The reason why they, they're so amazing and interesting to me is that they were true warrior poets, and I, I, what I mean is that they they could they could slice your your head off, and they were extremely pr- prolific warriors. But they would also then go home and write some poetry, or do some flower arranging, have a tea ceremony, uh, meditate. Um, in other words, they would cultivate not just external power but they would cultivate internal power and internal mastery as well and to me that's fascinating uh that that's heroic um especially as we live in this culture that seems to perpetuate the warrior archetype as being all the the masculine traits just the just the power and the fury and none of that internal um, mastery so the, the the samurai taught me a lot when i was living in japan i was i was reading a lot of books about bushido which is the samurai code of honor and um, zanshin is a is a term that's used not just in Aikido but in other Japanese martial arts and also creative arts like like flower arranging. And zanshin literally means that the mind with no remainder. Um, so just the mind with no remainder. So it's, that's an interesting it's an interesting term. Um, and I'll tell you a quick story. Tell me about of, that. Yeah. So there's a quick story here. So. So I was, in, I was actually in Japan uh, just two years ago and I was snowboarding with buddies and it was really, really, really deep snow and like I'm talking like shoulder deep like, and we were going off piece, uh, we, we're checking out all these new zones and I basically got lost and I got stuck in this flat bit um, and my friends were completely separated from me. I couldn't see them. They couldn't see me. I was shouting. I tried to check my phone. My phone died in my hands. And, and I realized that um, I was kind of stuck and I was going to have to, to like do some heavy, like if you've ever tried to move in, in shoulder deep snow, it's hard, 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 hard work, especially when the snow is fluffy and powdery like it is in northern Japan. So I began to try and move myself and I just figured, okay, so this is going to take me 15 minutes or so of, of moving through this snow before I can get myself to a safe zone. And I was like, cool, I'm good with that. I'm fit. I can handle it. And so I began to move and I, and I began to slowly realize that how, how bad this situation was. I didn't know fully the direction that I needed to go in. I could only move about um, probably like half an hour. In half an hour, I probably moved like 10 meters and I was, and it was getting dark, like, and it was going to drop down in temperature a lot, and I was going to get extremely cold. And you know, it was like it turned into like a kind of survival situation, pretty fast. And um, I was at this stage when I, I, I was sort of bordering on panic. Like, I was 
my mind was playing out all these scenarios and I became really, really scared. And I began thinking all these worst case scenarios in my mind. And I just kept on having these flashes of, 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 of visions of things going wrong. And also I had that feeling in the pit of my stomach. You know when you've really, really, really messed up, you have that feeling of dread in, in the bottom of your stomach. And I had that hard. And so I had to like sit myself down and have a real, real good talk with myself. And um, I, I, was, I brought up in my mind what I'd learned uh, from the samurai um, about this term zanshin, the, the mind with no remainder. And I remember, because I used to study martial arts uh, before when, when I lived in Japan, and I remember being in this state of immersion and focus where, and it was painful, I'd be doing training, repetitive training exercises which were physically painful, but my mind would be so absorbed and so immersed in the action that I was taking so that there was no remainder left over for me to feel the pain or the dread or the fear or anything like that. And so what I did was I, I broke down my goal to, to get to safety into smaller chunks because the big goal was just scaring the hell out of me. Like the big goal was too big. So I broke it down into a chunk that my, that my mind could handle, like get to that tree over there, then get to that tree, then get to that tree. And then I I focused on the technique that I would use to, to move in the snow, which involved crawling on my stomach, using my snowboard as a, as like a, as a stomper to stomp down the snow, and I had to shuffle on my shins and my, and my forearms. And I focused on this technique so much so that there was the, my mind had no remainder left over for anything else. And as I became more absorbed, I became better and better at the technique. I began to move faster and faster. And as I got better at the technique, I began to feel more joy and satisfaction in what I was doing. And I got to the stage where I was moving steadily along way faster than I was before. And I actually had transformed from, from absolute fear to something resembling joy. I was enjoying the process. There was joy in it. And this to me was a profound lesson in, in Zanshin. Like by, by immersing myself in the... In, in, in the actual action rather than the end product. So, so by taking the goal and then releasing the goal so that I could focus on the steps required to meet the goal, I was allowing my mind no remainder to focus on fear or negative outcomes. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I can definitely relate to this. You, you were faced with this challenge that put your very survival at stake and then you reached a, a state of peak performance um, by digging deep and, and meeting that challenge. Yeah, but also by breaking it down so that the totality of my awareness was absorbed by the technicals of meeting that challenge. Gotcha. I, I experienced kind of almost the same thing that you're describing about a month ago where I was in the, the rainforest, uh, Nagara, it's the oldest rainforest in the world, and uh, I was walking alone. I walked for about three hours, and um, suddenly like, I just see like my foot is bleeding, and then I look down and there's there's like leeches like climbing onto my feet, you know, and I just remember like I I felt terrified and I was all alone. I I still had like another hour to walk and I was like everywhere there was leeches and then I suddenly I felt like I was lost and it was like overheating and I was like shit, okay I, I I'm in a situation where my my very survival is at stake and I'm like uh, terrified of you know picking up these leeches off my feet every you know twenty seconds. And, um, I just like, suddenly I was like, just suddenly nothing else mattered. You know, I was just like, just 
completely in that moment, and it was it was almost a little bit ironic, I think. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely man. absolutely yeah i'm sure yeah. everybody's got got, got a, a similar story even if it's from childhood yeah. of just feeling completely completely terrified but then they 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 pull themselves together they focus and they achieve their goal and i and i feel like uh, it would be awesome if everybody just drew from that lesson they, they explored that that episode in their life so that they could take away something valuable for the future you mentioned uh, one thing you said, the fragility of life. And um, there's a quote that I love. It's, uh, I think it's, Dai, I'm looking it up, it's Daidoji Yuzan, the Bushido Code. And he says that yeah. uh, one who is supposed to be a warrior considers it his foremost concern to keep death in mind at all times, every day and every night. And yeah. when you do that, you realize that fragility of life. And then I guess you can kind of uh, bring yourself back to... Um, that that realization where you know this is it. I have to I have to do this now. Mm, absolutely. The uh, yeah. yeah, the samurai they had a, they had an interesting relationship with 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 death. It's uh, something that's <laughs> fascinated me for a while. Like I would have been a know, horrible samurai, by the way, because I've you know they, they they like to kill themselves when they fail. You know, and I've failed so many times. I would probably be, <laughs> I would probably be dead by now. But I do really admire their their philosophy. <laughs> Oh, I think I, I think they, I, I think there's a difference between failure and dishonoring. Um, so I feel like you could fail many times and without dishonoring your family or the code. Um, but I but I but I know what you mean. Like, uh, <laughs> yes, they. I, I think for them to become the masters that they were, obviously they would have had to fail a lot. Um, but yeah, dishonoring the family, dishonoring the code, that was definitely instant, instant, um, had a kitty. You got, you got to, you got to ritually disembowel yourself, which yeah, is, is just a terrifying concept. But for these guys, th- this is interesting, right? Like for us, it's such a, a shocking, abhorrent idea that these guys could kill themselves in the prime of their life because of something related to honor. But for me, it illustrates that these guys had a profoundly different relationship with life and death. And it, it highlights to me how in, in our life, in, in our culture, we tend to, we, we run away from death. We, we're afraid of death. We, we, want to, we want to not talk about death. It's like a subject that's going to end most conversations. Um, but the irony is, is that it's 100% happening. One million percent it's happening. It's the only certainty that we have. And so for these samurai, it was like they just had a different perspective on it. It's like it's definitely coming, so I'm going to meet it on my own terms. And uh, for them, the, the, the idea of the, the, the cherry blossom tree in Japan is very symbolic. The cherry blossom falls in its prime. And you'll, in Japan, they've got this massive fetish with cherry blossom trees, and you'll, you'll see all the tourists going to take pictures. But you'll notice that the cherry blossom flower is at its, it's at its peak when it falls down from the tree, and that's the way the samurai saw their own lives, that there was, yeah. there was a beauty in, in uh, departing from this life in your prime. Here in Thailand, um, you know, we see these spring blossoms. I see the spring blossoms everywhere, but they never last very long. You know, you see them for like uh, maybe a week or maybe less than a week, and, and then they're gone, you know, a week mm-hmm. later. And I, I remember I was, I was thinking of, of uh, you know, the, la- the movie The Last Samurai, where um, I can't remember the actor's name, but, you know, as, as he's dying, he's, he's looking at these these cherry blossoms and he's like they're all perfect and he said you know you could spend a lifetime searching for the the perfect cherry blossom and it would not be wasted 
and he sees oh. that he sees that at the very last moment uh, when he's yeah. about to die and the, the cherry blossoms and and he he realizes like I've, I've reached that I've I found that perfect cherry blossom. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's uh, it, I, I once I once spent the best part of a day. Uh, I discovered I discovered this thing called a, a jisei. It's it's a it's a Japanese word, but you'd Google it by putting in J I S E I, J I S E I jisei, and I discovered that this is like a death poem that monks and samurai warriors would write on their deathbed. So if, for example, if a samurai was mortally wounded, he would, with urgency, he would tell one of his friends or servants to go grab him like their equivalent of a pen and paper. I don't know what they used. <laughs> and he would write out a poem at that moment of death. And um, imagine the sort of stuff that comes out from th- these people who are trained in this way and they're on their deathbed, they're facing death, and they have this opportunity to write a, a short poem. So just if you want an interesting insight into a different perspective on life and death and you want to be just completely wowed by, I guess, the honor of, of these of these monks and samurai, then then just spend some time reading these poems. say Okay, I'd never heard about that. It's a death poem. I, I can't wait to look into that. I've, I've learned a lot of different things uh, from this interview. And every time I, I listen to you in an interview or, uh, you know, look at your work, I, I always learn a new, something new or a new way of looking at things. And I just want to thank you. Like, I mean, we, we've already been at this over an hour and we talked for about 30 minutes before the call, but like, I literally feel like I could talk about this stuff for a whole day and, and, you know, only scratch the surface. I know, man, I'm the same. (laughs) We could just, we could just go on for days. Yeah. And there's still so much I want to talk about, but you know, it's, it's been a a very long interview, but it's been very packed full of uh, really great stuff. Um, I, I really liked, um, if you're listening to this interview and you want to go back, um, you, you gave this great definition around 43 minutes in where uh, you gave a definition of flow and uh, I, I took something from that. I think you said that the, your sense of time and reasoning, I think it was, it kind of shuts down when you're in a flow state. Yeah, time and self and, and self. rational thought. Time, self and rational thought. And okay. time, yeah, yeah. So, so basically you live in this, so, so the flow state is like this bubble that you're in where you're completely immersed in what you're doing and there is no time and there is no separate sense of, of there is no Danny Flood, there is no Jira Taylor. It's just like you are it, whatever it is that you're doing. You are the potatoes being peeled. You are the wave being ridden. You are the rock being climbed. Like that's, that's, that's the flow state. Beautiful stuff. So I'm, I'm actually going to remember that now and... Um... I think that's that is probably part of the reason why we are so eager to, um, I, I guess, disconnect from our ego. You know, disconnect from our cultural conditioning and what society tells us we are and what we tell us our what we are based on our previous experiences and being free to explore this concept of the loss of ego and losing the self, losing time and rational thought. Uh, I think this is really powerful stuff and. I just want to, again, you know, uh, thank you and congratulate you for your work and what you've accomplished so far and uh, really just wish you the best of luck going forward. Can you tell me a little bit about what your, uh, tell me about your business and what your plans are from here? Sure, Danny. So, so at the moment, so Flow State Collective is kind of like the, the, the home, the hub uh, for a few projects that I've got going on. And all of these kind of projects evolve as I evolve. 
Um, when I first started up Flow State Collective, it was all about adventure retreats where I'd take people snowboarding and surfing and, and learn about flow theory and then put it into practice, into their own experience. I still do these things. Then I evolved to teaching people meditation, which I still love to do. And uh, I now coach uh, startup entrepreneurs, so specifically people who have founded their own business, who are entering a challenging period of, of high growth and high-velocity change. And I feel called to help these people tap into their highest state of performance so that they can do what they've got to do because I feel very passionate about business being a vehicle for profound change in our, in our culture, on our planet. Um, so p- many of the other projects that I'm doing are around how businesses can be infused with flow state principles and philosophies so that they can, I guess, not just, not just achieve performance but purpose as well. So I've got another project I'm launching which is going to be called the Collective Flow Project. I want, to ex- I want to explore why and how certain teams, groups, military units, orchestras, whatever it is, achieve states of unbelievable performance in certain times, but in other times they do not. Um, so that's a research, open source research project that uh, if anybody listening to this is interested in that, please shoot me an email to jiro at theflowstatecollective.com. And finally, um, I've got a program that I'm, that I'm launching soon. It's going to be all about flow state mastery, uh, specifically geared towards the modern high performer, the person who wants to get those 1% gains. And um, that's yet to be launched. But if you want to jump on a webinar to learn more about that, then just jump on the Flow State Collective website, which is www.flowstatecollective.com. And on the right-hand side, you'll see Entrepreneur in Flow. It's a... Uh, greater depth some of the concepts that we've that we've discussed today when is that webinar going to take place that is uh thursday the 24th uh at 4 p.m uh pacific time so if you're in la and it's friday the 25th of march if you're in thailand or sydney or anywhere in asia okay so we'll get this episode out uh before then and um Thank you so, so much for your time, Jiro. I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, I think you brought a, a ton of value out there for all the listeners as well. Cool. Thanks so much, Danny. Can't wait to next, for next time. Take care, man. See ya.